Revelation 2 and 3 today. I think it's in your pamphlet, or it is in your pamphlet, or open up a Bible. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it known only to him who receives it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess 
By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does will to the end, does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what, at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people inside us who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. 
I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. find it hard to follow Jesus. Maybe you're looking around at Australian society at the moment and you see that people seem to be increasingly hostile towards Christians and it makes you nervous. Maybe you read last year about Madeline, an 18-year-old Christian who posted on Facebook that it's okay to vote no to marriage equality and promptly discovered that it wasn't okay to say that at all. She was sacked from her job with a kids' party company. And her boss declared to the Guardian newspaper, advertising your desire to vote no to same-sex marriage is, in my eyes, hate speech. Now, the lawyers may disagree with that, but Madeline still lost her job. Maybe you worry that if you talk about your faith in Jesus and living for him, that something similar might happen to you. On the other hand, maybe you find yourself struggling with something like pornography. Or maybe, let's be honest, maybe not struggling with it very much at all, just kind of giving in over and over again and thinking this is all too hard. Jesus just demands too much. Maybe you're super-duper doctrinally orthodox and you can recite the Westminster Catechism off by heart and not that shorter one, the longer one, the larger Westminster Catechism with all 196 questions and answers with verse references. But somehow the joy of following Jesus has sort of leaked out somewhere. Or maybe you're super duper excited and enthusiastic. You're always inviting your friends to church. After all, it's one non-stop, happy, clappy, super awesome party time. But somewhere along the way, Jesus fell off the back of the party bus. Or maybe you just feel tired and worn out. You've been serving Jesus faithfully for the last... 17, 18, 30, 50 years. And you're just knackered. You're holding on by your fingertips, praying that Jesus will come back soon because you're not sure how much longer you can last. Do you ever find it hard to follow Jesus? If you do, what would Jesus say to you? Well, in the two chapters that we're looking at today, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, we actually get to listen in to Jesus as he speaks to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, what we would call Turkey today. 
And although these are ancient letters, nearly 2,000 years old, we're going to discover that the issues that Jesus addresses, the issues facing these churches, are actually surprisingly similar to what Christians and churches face today. What Jesus said to them still applies now. I've tried to uh, sort of lay out the two chapters for you in the handout, breaking it up into sections, because you'll see that they have some common sort of threads that run through them. So each of them starts off a bit like an email. It's got the two field. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, or Smyrna, or Pergamum, or Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And the word translated as angel is just the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. Uh, it could be a human messenger, it could be an angelic messenger. It's a little bit hard to tell. Maybe these are human uh, messengers, people who are actually on the island of Patmos with John, about to take his letter back to the different churches. Or maybe there's some kind of angelic messenger. Either way, each letter is addressed to the church in that city. The two field is fairly straightforward, but the from field gets kind of weird. It isn't from Jesus at gmail.com. Uh, instead, it's from him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Or it's from the first and the last who died and came to life again. From him who has the sharp double-edged sword, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze, etc., etc., but if you were here last week, or you've read Revelation chapter 1, you'll recognise all these phrases. They're all from chapter 1, and they all refer to Jesus. So why doesn't he just say, from Jesus, like a normal person? Well, I think it's because he wants to remind the churches of who he really is, and how that matters for their particular situation. So if you look at the second letter there, the one that's addressed to Smyrna, you'll see that Jesus says, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. And then down in verse 10, we read his promise to them. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who died and came to life again urges them to be willing to die, and he will give them life. Or the sixth letter to Philadelphia. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And in the next verse, he says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And as you read on through the letter, you discover that they've been shut out of the local synagogue. And yet Jesus promises that they will be a permanent part of the heavenly temple, his kingdom. Who Jesus is, is particularly relevant to the church as he speaks to them. And in the third section, he reminds each of them that he knows their situation. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you're chatting to someone and you're talking to them about something that's been happening in your life and they say, yeah, I know how you feel. And you think, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't have a clue. Well, actually, that is often true with us, but with Jesus, he does know. He knows all about us. He knows what his church is going through. And he knows it better than we know ourselves. 
And if you wanted to boil down what it is that Jesus knows about these churches, well, he knows that they are facing the twin threats of terror and error. So first up, terror. Uh, If you look at the church in Pergamum, uh, in the third column, chapter 2, verse 13, they're having a particularly terrifying time. Uh, Jesus describes Pergamum as the place where Satan lives and where Satan has his throne. We know actually that Pergamum was the centre of Roman government in Asia and it was the first city in the world to worship Caesar Augustus as God. Now even some non-Christian Romans were a little uncomfortable with that but it wasn't a huge problem for them because after all if you're a normal sort of pagan Roman, you've got lots of gods and, you know, sure, maybe Caesar's a bit up himself to be claiming to be a god, but you can chuck him into the mix. That's okay. You can offer some incense to him. You can offer some sacrifices. But if you're Christian, that's impossible. How can you possibly do that? How could you treat Caesar as a god when you know that only Jesus is God? But then if you don't worship Caesar, are you really loyal to Rome? Are you actually a trustworthy citizen? Christians were persecuted, ostracised, uh, sometimes even killed, like Antipas in verse 13. Not very often, actually. But you don't need it to happen very often to make you nervous, do you? I mean, imagine if one of us was beaten up and killed for following Jesus. The rest of us, I think, would be fairly uncomfortable We'd be fairly threatened by that. In Smyrna and Philadelphia, the problem is actually the local Jewish synagogues. Uh, In both letters, Jesus goes so far as to call them a synagogue of Satan, which is pretty harsh. You think, why is he saying that? Is Jesus anti-Semitic? Has he sort of come down with a bout of self-loathing? I mean, Jesus himself is Jewish. No. Jesus is Jewish. All of his earliest followers were Jewish. And early on, many Jewish synagogues had both Christian and non-Christian members. Those who acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah and those who rejected him. And as long as the Christians were considered sort of part of that community, part of the Jewish religion, then they were allowed to worship in Rome. They were considered a legal religion by the Roman Empire. So the Romans had tried to crush Judaism a number of times and the Jews were just so fanatical in resisting it that the Romans eventually gave up and said, all right, whatever, you can follow your God. You don't have to pray to Caesar as long as you pray for him. That's all right. But whenever things got tense in the synagogue between the followers of Jesus, the Messiah, and those who rejected him, Well, the ones who rejected him could always run to the local governor and say, Sir, sir, these people are not Jews. They're a different thing altogether. They're they're traitors to us and to you. You should really sort them out. And that left the Christians without any legal protection, vulnerable to the whims of the local governor. And in those circumstances, it would be easy to be terrified, wouldn't it? To be afraid that one wrong word is going to have you outed as a Christian. Threatened, 
pressure still exists today, doesn't it, when you look around the world? North Korea, many Muslim countries, Christians face the threat of persecution, even death. There's enormous pressure on them to not be faithful witnesses to Jesus, to just turn inwards and stop functioning as lampstands, shining the light of Jesus to the world around them. We've got to pray for those guys, that they'll be able to stand firm. It does sort of happen in Perth as well, doesn't it? You know, I mean, Perth is not North Korea, but a few years ago at WAPA, the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, uh, the students there were asked to sing songs in praise of demons as part of their training, you know, their vocal training. And the Christians who were in that class were pretty uncomfortable with that, and they said they didn't feel they could do it because it would dishonour Jesus. An enormous pressure was put on them by the lecturer and the university and uh, their classmates as well. They were actually told that if they didn't sing the songs, they would fail the unit and they'd be kicked out of the course. This is a true story, (laughs) right here in Perth, at a university. What would you do? Yeah, I don't know, maybe just sing the song. After all, demons, we don't worship them, you know, we're just kind of pretending for the sake of the unit, but would it be honouring to Jesus? Would it glorify him? Well, the Christian students decided that they wouldn't cave in. They didn't want to dishonour Jesus. And it went on for several pretty stressful weeks. They were pretty anxious about it. Their whole future, as they saw it, their whole career was on the line. But then the university caved and allowed them to withdraw from the unit without failing the course. Good on them. That was gutsy. Me, I don't need the threat of death or the fear of being kicked out of uni to fear telling people about Jesus. I just need the threat of feeling slightly socially awkward for a couple of minutes. That's enough to put a bit of a damper on me. The threat of feeling like I'm kind of outside the mainstream. The fear that someone might not like me. I really like people to like me. There's always that threat. There's always that sort of worry, that anxiety. And alongside the threat of terror, there stands the threat of error. So if you come back with me for a moment to the letter to Pergamum uh, in chapter 2, verse 14, we learn that although the church as a whole has remained true to Jesus, he has a few things against them. They have people who hold to the teaching of Balaam and others who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, as far as I can work out, no one's got any idea who the Nicolaitans were. So I'm just going to skip over them. But those who hold to the teaching of Balaam, well, that's easier because we're actually told what they do. They eat food sacrificed to idols and they commit sexual immorality, just like the Israelites did back in the days of Moses when Balak, king of Moab, hired the prophet Balaam to seduce the Israelites into worshipping Moabite idols and sleeping with Moabite women. similar thing uh, seems to be happening in Thyatira as well. There, there's a woman who Jesus calls Jezebel after the evil queen of Israel from 900 years earlier. She set herself up as some kind of prophetess and is leading the church into sexual immorality and idol worship. And you think, oof, phew, good thing Christians don't fall into that trap today. But of course, they do, don't they? 
Australia's just had a royal commission into institutional child abuse that has exposed appalling things in churches. Every year or so, we hear of pastors being exposed for sexual sin or abusive behaviour. Bill Hybels, Steve Timmis, they're just the most recent ones. And then there's just average, everyday, ordinary Christians like us who are surrounded by this culture of sex where, you know, everyone else is doing it, so why can't I? The church is a golden lampstand, shining out as a witness to Jesus. But for some, the oil is pretty contaminated and the light is getting pretty low. Ephesus, we're told, has forsaken its first love which probably means witnessing to Jesus. Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but was actually dead. And Laodicea thought they were rich, but in reality they were wretched. Pitiful, poor, blind and naked. They think they're hot stuff, but they make Jesus want to vomit. And I suspect you could say the same thing for plenty of churches today. Some are dying because they've abandoned the faith in Jesus, turn their back on the Bible, on what Jesus says by the Spirit. Others are dying because although they're kind of doctrinally orthodox, somehow the joy of living for Jesus has just leached away. I was reading somewhere recently, a guy was making the comment that Christian communities die not so much when they become doctrinally unorthodox, although certainly they die when that happens. They die when the joy leaves. And I think he's on to something. The joy of living for Jesus leaches out and we become hard and legalistic. More concerned with sort of policing the boundaries of a certain type of social conformity than pointing people towards Jesus. We get to see here in these chapters a snapshot of first century churches in Asia Minor. But it's not just a snapshot of churches in first century Asia Minor, is it? It's actually a snapshot of the church in every age as we face the twin threats of terror and error. In fact, as you read through it, as we read through the the letters to the seven churches, you realise that they kind of cover every base. Um, Every possible situation, in a sense, whether they're super-duper 100% fantastic and Jesus can't say enough good stuff about them, or super-duper terrible and he can't think of anything good to say about them, or anything in between. They're representative of the whole church at any time. But Jesus knows our situation, he says. That's always a good thing, but it's not always a comfortable thing. Sometimes it leads to him encouraging us, but other times it leads to him rebuking us. Both are done out of love, love by Jesus for his church. When we're on the right track, he spurs us on. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer, he says to the church in Smyrna, in chapter 2, verse 10. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. But when we're on the wrong track, he warns us to turn around. Wake up, he says to the church in Sardis, 
chapter 3, verse 2. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come for you. Jesus encourages and rebukes. And then he urges us to listen. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You think, well, how do I do that? How do I, how do I hear what the Spirit says to the church? How do I hear what the Spirit says to me? Is there some kind of technique that I need to hear the Spirit? Do I need to get up super early in the morning to hear from the Holy Spirit? Does the Spirit only turn up after a good half hour of praise and worship songs? Do I need the latest Christian book to teach me how to hear from the Spirit? Well, no, no, and no. In each of the letters, what the Spirit says to the churches is what we've just read. What the Spirit says is what Jesus says. And what Jesus says is written there in black and white for us to read. Listening to the Spirit and Jesus is not about technique. If you can read, if you can hear someone else read, you can hear it. It's literally right in front of you. It's not about technique. It's about willingness. It's like in the Gospels when Jesus speaks to the crowds and he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. The crowds aren't sitting there scratching their heads going, gee, I wonder how we can hear from Jesus. They've just heard him. They don't need a special technique to hear him. No, the question Jesus is asking is, will you hear? Will you listen? Will they have ears to hear? Will we? It's a critical question here because listening to what Jesus says by the Spirit is actually crucial to overcoming the threats that we face and receiving the rewards Jesus promises. To him who overcomes... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I'll give authority over the nations. He who overcomes will be dressed in white. I'll never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. They're all different images, but they're all actually different angles on the same thing. They're all eternal life with God. That is the reward that Jesus promises for overcoming. That's why we need to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Because only those who stay faithful to Jesus will inherit eternal life. So what's going to help us do that? What will help us to persevere and remain faithful to Jesus? To enjoy eternal life with him, even as we face the threats of terror and error. Well, Jesus. 
Notice that each description of Jesus here is particularly relevant to each church. Ephesus is doctrinally orthodox, but they've forsaken their first love. They're no longer shining Jesus out to the world. And so Jesus describes himself to them as him who holds the seven stars, the angels of the church in his right hand, and walking among the seven golden lampstands, the churches shining out. To Smyrna, where Christians will be imprisoned and possibly executed, Jesus is the first and the last who died and came alive again. And the one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. That is, God's final condemnation. To Pergamum, where a Christian called Antipas was executed, Jesus appears as the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword, which he will use against those who follow the teaching of Balaam. And to those who refuse to participate in the idol feasts, he promises the hidden manna, the heavenly bread the Israelites ate in the desert to sustain them. I'll let you work through the connections in the other letters. But the point is that Jesus helps us by reminding us of who he is. That he is the Lord and Saviour who cares for his church, who offers forgiveness and eternal life. These letters to the churches remind us to fix our eyes on Jesus, remembering who he is, trusting in him. That's what will keep us safe from terror and error. That's why we're a little bit obsessive about studying the Bible, Christian Union. Uh, most CU things, we're going to open up the Bible. Uh, you get us together around Paella, we'll open up the Bible. It's true, we'll do it tonight. Uh, It'll be great out there on the Oak Lawn. Come and join us. We love the Bible. Uh, Why? Because we love Jesus. And in the Bible, we see Jesus. The more we see of him, the more we listen to him, the more we find that we love him and trust him. Jesus is the solution to terror and error. He is the solution to what threatens to tear us away from him. Jesus has written these letters. He's spoken them by his spirit, encouraging us to keep our eyes fixed on him, to turn away from terror and error, to stand strong, to be willing to speak out when we talk to our friends, when they ask us, hey, what did you do on the weekend? We don't just sort of mumble something about going to the beach, we can say, yeah, I went to the beach and I went to church on Sunday. It was great. I loved it. We heard this great talk about Jesus. When people threaten you, when your boss threatens you with sacking you because you hold to Christian truth, you don't need to be afraid. Jesus is there with you. He's in control. He is much more powerful than your boss. Don't need to be afraid. Don't need to give up. Jesus knows your situation and he cares for you. It's knowing Jesus that keeps us from terror and error. It's listening to him that keeps us safe. So will you listen to him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that Jesus is in control overall, that he knows our situation. 
Father, please help us to think through and uh, read your words so that we know the things that we hate that Jesus loves and that we love that Jesus hates so that we might uh, listen to what he says and uh, live in obedience and trust in him. We pray particularly for those Christians in other parts of the world who face much uh, more difficult situations than we do. Father, help them to know the love and uh, goodness of Jesus and his power as well, that they might stay faithful to him. And we ask it in 